Welcome to Nourish by Spinneys, the podcast which promises to inspire you to eat well and live well. I'm Devina Devecha. And I'm Tiffany Eslick. Welcome to a space where we hope to nourish your heart and soul. On this show, we chat with leading players in the food community, from farmers to foodies, as well as health and well-being experts. It's all about engaging conversations and fresh ideas. So today we're buckling down for a history lesson, quite literally, with food historian Ambeth Ocampo, who has been exploring Filipino art, culture and food going back to the 19th century. I caught up with him during his visit for the Emirates Lit Fest a couple of weeks ago, which was brilliant. And Ambeth has published over 35 books with fascinating titles like Banana Ketchup and Dirty Ice Cream. There is nothing dirty about ice cream. Exactly. And that's why this is an episode for which you really should have a notepad next to you because there's so much interesting information. Ambeth also told me about the Filipino palate and how it's evolved and adapted over the last century, how he got started in food history due to one of his teachers, and of course, the meaning behind titles like Dirty Ice Cream. Dirty Ice Cream is is the ice cream that in the Philippines, they buy it from an ambulant vendor. Right. And... Um, I used to wonder why why do people call it dirty ice cream and yeah. why do even people buy it yeah. even if it's called dirty and I found out by looking at the research I mean before the war when commercial ice cream was made available so the the commercial ice creams sort of said our our stuff is cleaner than something that you can buy on the street and so it stuck on and it became dirty ice cream but the the thing here is that the the titles of my books normally come from the lead essay, and uh, this particular book has a number of um, a number of essays on Philippine food. And dirty ice cream happened to be the the, the lead essay. But the the thing there was the research about the the ice cream was not so much that it was dirty, but it led me to dig up. I mean, the Philippines is the tropics, so we, we there was a time when there were no refrigerators or freezers. So how did they make ice cream? And I found out that in the 19th century, uh, ice was sourced from a lake in Boston called Wenham Lake. Okay. And it was reputedly the most, the clearest, cleanest, crisp water. It was the only ice that Queen Victoria would would take. Okay. And so what they did in the States was they would cut off whole blocks of this ice, load them into ships, and send them all the way off to India. And uh, one of the stopovers, of course, was was Manila. And so every month, this ice, this ice ship came, uh, brought in some ice, and I guess with the ice, they first had iced water, they had sherbet, and later on, of course, with, with the commercial ice plant, that's when the ice cream came. But can you imagine how much of the ice actually melted on its way on to way. India? <laughs> uh, I guess there was, I guess they, they sold cold water at some point, you know, so that, that was it. So, um, the ice, the ice cream, uh, essays actually about, uh, not only how ice came to the Philippines in the 19th century, but it connects to other things. Uh, there, the Philippines has, uh, Another ice street, which is called Halo Halo, yes. uh, which uh, literally translates into mix mix, 
And of course, we didn't have shaved ice. So again, most people think it's 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 a Philippine food. Mm -hmm. But uh, when I lived in Japan, I realized that they have this shaved ice street called Kakigori in mm -hmm. the summer. And that's when I realized that the halo-halo, which Filipinos think is distinctly their own, is actually a cousin of of the Japanese kakigori and the like the the stewed beans uh candied uh sweet potato and uh, other things that go into this halo-halo uh were made by Japanese before the war that's fascinating so again you see a Japanese the Japanese roots of something that that people think is uh, is is Philippine so i've been studying like in my undergrad history classes i always start the semester with food I ask my students to to write an essay on food from their childhood. Uh, that's always the first essay, and it's it's an essay in memory. So yes. people sit down and they remember. And I let them read an excerpt from Proust, the uh, In Search of Lost Time, about the man eating a madeleine and this madeleine bringing out a flood of memory and so when the kids come and we discuss their essays they not only describe the food of their childhood but then they connect it and they see that food is not just tastes and textures it's memory yeah and their childhood food whether it's food they hated or food they liked um actually says a lot about where they came from and why they are the way that they are and so uh, when they, we look at that and then we start to look at the food and we, I, I tell them that history does not always come from an archival document or an old book. You can actually read it from food, from something that is every day. It's, it's, it's in your face and yet you, we see but we don't notice. And so yeah. like you look at dirty ice cream, you look at halo-halo, and that's when you will realize all the other influences that made Philippine food uh, what it is. Yeah, so. and you learn so much about, you know, like you said, not just the food, but also a country or a place through it. Through it, um, yes, which is, yes. It's fascinating. And it's actually fascinating because, like, if you ask Pinoys, I guess you have friends who are Pinoys, and you ask them what the national dish is, and they'll probably tell you it's adobo. Mm. And they often think, that adobo is Spanish because it comes from the Spanish word adobar, which means mm -hmm. to stew or pickle in, in vinegar. So, yes. But when we did the research, we realized that when the early Spanish came, they were given this dish and they did. The idiots forgot to ask the person, what is this dish called? So they said, ah, it, it's, it's like adobo, it's, it's stewed in vinegar. So adobo is not the name of a dish. It's actually a cooking process. Interesting. And so, uh, so now we're sort of rewriting, reclaiming yes. uh, the past and saying, you know, what you formerly thought was Spanish is actually Filipino. It was already there. And when you think about it, stewing in vinegar means that they cooked it not for taste. It was meant for, for preservation. Yeah. So in an age without a refrigerator, that's where you have uh, adobo, which is stewed in vinegar. You have dried fish, salted fish, uh, fermented yeah. fish paste, you know. So all of these things actually show us, you know, uh, a process. So like uh, in, in the in the book, there's also something called um, stinking fish. Yes. And um, um, this came because... Um, the national hero of the Philippines, Jose Rizal, who, who was shot for two novels, which nobody reads, 
Um, the, the thing here is, uh, if you read the novels, which were written in the 19th century, there's a lot of food uh, in it. All right. And it, it describes different types of food and how this food is cooked. But Rizal was, was a scholar. So um, in 1888, he went to the British Library and uh, he dug up a book. It's a 17th century book on the Philippines, which he said, I want to, to see what the Philippines was like before the Spanish came. And the 17th century author said, oh, the Filipinos, they eat venison, they eat pork and beef and fish, etc." And then he, he says, you know, and they eat rotten food. And he says, and these people know that the food is rotten because their, their food stinks. So that's what was written in the 17th century. And when Rizal read this a hundred years later, he was so incensed. And so he wrote a very long footnote saying, no, we don't eat rotten food. This is actually fermented fish paste. It's called bagoong. It is a delicacy in my country. So he says, you have to, you can't diss other people's food. You have to put it in context and yeah. understand us for what we are. So in a sense, Rizal, just by talking about answering this guy from a hundred years before, yeah. was actually defining not just the food, but what it meant to be Filipino. Yeah. So um, uh, that has been one of my great uh, influences. Um, I actually got into food because my undergrad English teacher was the was the pioneering food historian of the Philippines, uh, Doreen Fernandez, and. Uh, in my undergrad days, uh, just to show you how ancient I am, um, <laughs> in I, we, I, I had her in 1980. Yeah. And in 1980, it was the first time that McDonald's opened in the Philippines. Okay. So she says, we will go to this branch, you come with me, and we will buy, she bought, you know, 25 burgers, 25 fries, <laughs> 25 fizzy drinks, and we brought it all back to school. Mm-hmm. Uh, because she was a food critic. Yeah. So 25 students had their first taste of McDonald's Philippines food. And then we discussed it. So she wanted to see, was the texture the same? Is the quality the same? Um, and so I saw how she worked. So we would, uh, uh, later on, we would go outside of, of Manila. I mean, that was one of my, I wouldn't say traumatic I, i'd say they were it was a formative experience we okay. went to we went to a place no, uh, three hours north of manila okay. uh, very early in the morning and said what are we going to do here oh we're going to document food and i said okay fine so we got there and i said where's the food and we were brought to the back of this house okay. and there was a goat i'm really that. scared now <laughs> and then she says that will be our food i said ah, it's okay. alive so so again so she documented the whole process yeah. from the light yeah. poor lighting yeah. how it was uh, slaughtered uh, cleaned etc and how it was made into different dishes yes. and she says look at these people they're able to to use every part of the goat except the horns and the hooves and so we i saw how this live thing became five different dishes and, and and so that 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 showed me again this whole process of of cooking and yeah. why goat is eaten in one part of the philippines and not in another part or like uh the people in the south in a place called Bicol is the only place where you'll have hot food in the philippines they they eat chili like they would eat peanuts oh, right. 
uh, and they're the only ones who are like that. So, Why is uh, that? well, they live beside the volcano, so there there must be a connection somewhere. <laughs> but um, that, that's it. So uh, the Philippines is a uh, it's a complicated country. It's a uh, it's a young nation with a long history. Yeah, uh, there are over seven thousand islands and over hundred fifty different ethnolinguistic groups, and each ethnolinguistic group has its own distinct cuisine. Um, and so sometimes I think the whole idea too of nation is um, how do you make a nation out of a 7,000 island archipelago with 50,000 adobo dishes, yeah. you know? Um, so it must be, it must be difficult. Yeah. So it's, it, it's one of the things I, I wish that, and in my books, I mean, there, I, I like people to see history from different angles and food happens to be just one of the angles that yeah. we don't um, look at. I'm sorry I talk too much. No, so no, might, we, we like that. Have, you we might love that. Have. But now I'm going to ask you about the, the other um, uh, dish that's mentioned in the title, banana ketchup. Why is that? Okay, yes, yes. Yeah, <laughs> ba banana ketchup. It was, uh, it was invented by uh, a woman during World War II. Okay. Uh, she was a food technologist. Uh, her name was Maria Orosa, and posthumously, we sort of looked back at her and and and, and see how this lady, by doing food technology during the war, was able to save many lives because things that they would throw away, she made into food. So Amazing. her most uh, memorable invention, of course, was banana ketchup because there was scarcity of tomatoes. And she says, why does ketchup always have to be tomato? Why can't we use banana? And uh, so it's a Swedish thing. And uh, and if you have tried, I guess there's Jollibee here in, in yes, Dubai. <laughs> and Filipino spaghetti, of course, yes. <laughs> is made with banana ketchup and hot dogs. Yes. So I'm sure the Italians will have a fit uh, <laughs> wondering why, how. And so this whole idea of appropriation. Uh, but I'd like to think that... Uh, for Filipinos, they don't like uh, Italian spaghetti. They find it too uh, too sour oh, because okay. of the tomato base. And I like to think that uh, in 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 the modern world, while we uh, barriers have have broken, so we don't think in terms of nation. We think of a global community. So mm -hmm. while the Italians will probably say, you know, it's appropriation to get our spaghetti, but the thing there is. Spaghetti came to the Philippines, of course, it came in its Italian form, but the Filipinos adapted it using the ingredients that were available to them. Yeah. And in a sense, they have adapted it, indigenized it, and they made it their own. Like when we say I mean, Singaporeans or Filipinos speak English, mm -hmm. it's not English that they would speak in, in London or yeah. in New York. So it's a particular thing. And I'd like to think that in, in food, we see... Uh, not just a mix of, of cultures, but adaptations that make food bigger and yeah. wider than we would want it to be. I mean, I taught a course on food in Philippine culture in Japan. Okay. And of course, for me, uh, Japanese cuisine is, is the highest form of, of food that you can get because the Japanese eat with their eyes. It's, it's, uh, 
it's a complete sensory uh, experience, you know, beautiful tableware. I mean, you, you get the sushi, you have the taste of the fish, which is from the sea. You have yeah. rice, which is from the land. You put it in your mouth and there's a bit of wasabi that will yeah. kick. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's total sensory thing. And so, of course, I taught this in the Philippines, in Tokyo. And I told my students, can you? try Philippine food, etc. And of course, when the reports came, I was horrified because the kids said, your food is brown, it's oily, it's unhealthy. Uh, and I said, oh my God, well, it's not that way. Where did you get it? So of course, they went to, you know, some not real restaurants in Japan. They're usually little bars right, where, okay. where the women uh, cook Philippine food and right. sell it. So it's not exactly... Uh, uh, Philippine food you would you would serve to a guest. Yeah. The others who were not too, um, they watched a YouTube video, okay. so they cooked adobo by themselves. Oh, okay. And of course, when it came out, I mean, it's oily and brown. And uh, then I said, no. So I said, no, I have to redeem myself. And, <laughs> and then they said something like, and you have something called champurado. I said, yes. yes. And this is uh, chocolate rice. Yeah. And for them, it was, Totally unthinkable. Yuck. They said, you know, chocolate and rice. And I said, yeah, but you have cocoa crispies in milk, right? Uh, but, yeah. they, but of course, they couldn't. <laughs> I, it was beyond their imagination. Fortunately, uh, the Philippine ambassador in Tokyo over dinner, I told him what my students felt. So he says, what time is your class? So his, his <laughs> cook, the next class sent. Uh, you know, proper uh, no a noodle dish. They sent uh, dried mango. They sent uh, yam ice cream. Yeah. Of course, the kids were, oh, this is so nice. Yeah. I say, yeah, because this comes from a house. This is not uh, normal uh, street food that yeah. you will get. So again, it was something that people get to understand cultures through yeah. through the food that they are eating. We'll be right back with Ambeth and some of his favorite dishes and what nourishes his soul. That's right after the short break. Stay with us. Davina, let's take a minute to talk about one of my favorite things, cheese. Do you have a favorite kind of cheese though, or is that too hard a question? Absolutely. I'm not even going down that road. Um, but I know the cheese I want to talk about right now, and that's Parmigiano-Reggiano. I was in Italy earlier this year and found myself surrounded by wheels of them stacked into towers, almost like a skyline. This is at our supplier Zanetti, which is now in its fourth generation, having started in 1900 by Guido Zanetti. His great-grandson Paolo Zanetti gave me a fantastic tour. Most importantly, did you get to try both the Parmigiano-Reggiano and the Grana Padano? Yes, absolutely. I tried various wheels of cheese of different ages and Paolo really went into detail about like which cheese goes with which dish that you're trying to serve. For a big occasion, like uh, together with a very good Italian uh, red wine or uh, you know, champagne, it's good to have a very well mature Parmigiano-Reggiano, like a three years old Parmigiano-Reggiano. If you want uh, uh, products to be created on pasta, uh, like 16 months old, uh, uh, Grana Padano is very good and uh, as a table cheese or as an appetizer cheese or as a piece of cheese I used to have a Parmigiano Reggiano, well mature Parmigiano Reggiano, like three years old Parmigiano Reggiano. So the next time you're serving something special for your friends or family or just indulging in a slice of pizza or leftover pasta for breakfast, grate some of our Spinney's food Parmigiano Reggiano or Grana Padano today. 
Welcome back. I'm Devina Devecha and you're listening to Nourish by Spinnies and my conversation with Ambeth Ocampo. Do you find that even now there's a lot of this misconception about what Filipino cuisine is or tastes like, you know, and why do you think that is? Because I feel like... It's, yeah, it's a bit of a problem like, uh, I think it was last year, our Department of Trade decided that just like, I mean, when you think about it, you know, the 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 sudden international emergence of, say, Thai food or mm. Korean food. It's because their governments it's, really push it's, this. Yeah, it's food and, diplomacy. And, and, and yeah. they, food diplomacy, and they defined it. So in the Philippines, they said, we have to define what an adult, I mean, like a tom yum from Bangkok, they know, you know exactly what it tastes yeah. like. A, a sushi cannot be uh, a sushi if it doesn't have the, the particular flavor. So our Department of Trade made the mistake of saying, why don't we standardize the adobo, and there was this uproar, you right. know, uh, how dare you touch my grandmother's adobo. <laughs> but I was saying it's not really standardizing, but defining what an adobo should be, yeah. how much, how much, be, because again, even an adobo, the, 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 the staple there is the vinegar. Yeah. But there are places where they use soy sauce, uh, there are ah. places where they don't. There are places where the adobo has is is has a lot of sauce. Mm. There's places where the adobo is dry and it's almost fried. So again, with all of these different, and I like to think maybe it's because again it's an archipelagic country with seven thousand islands. Each each island very protective of yes. its its own uh, cooking. So I uh, I like to think that maybe one day we should really define it. But again, it became a touchy mm -hmm. uh, political and social issue. So I think our trade industry sort of, you know, uh, stepped back. But I said, maybe if you define it well or we explain why we are doing this, then we can, we can get somewhere. So I, I'd like to think that uh, Filipino identity is tied up very much with its cuisine. Mm -hmm. But until today, uh, we're still digging it up. We're still trying to find out what it is that makes Filipino food what it is. And I'd like to think the clue there is is like Filipino spaghetti with banana ketchup and hot dogs. Uh, it is it is how Filipinos like yeah. a particular food. And maybe that's how we define not just your cuisine, but your your identity as yeah. a nation. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to ask you a question that you pose your students. If you had to write an essay about a childhood memory related to food, what would you write about? Hmm, that's difficult. I never thought of it that way. But um, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> no, there's, there's. Well, I guess it's it's the food that I had in my grandmother's house, and um, it was only actually recently that my cousins and I realized what it was to grow up. I, I, my fa This is my father's side of the mm -hmm. family. We would go every Sunday until my grandparents died. And I was about uh, 18 or 19 when they passed away. But my father's family, they, they, they're a big family. They're, they had 10 siblings. And I have cousins who are, there's 10 in the family, eight in the family. Mm -hmm. So we would go every Sunday to my grandmother's house. And it's only when we think about it today that she served at least a hundred people every Sunday. Wow! That that's a, a pa that's a party, you know, and <laughs> that's more than and, a party. <laughs> and over the years, you know, um, and it's not that. I mean, I have seventy-five cousins, so seventy-five cousins plus ten 
20 uncles. That's 100. No? And then, of course, it's not just you. You have to feed the staff. You have to feed the baby minders, the drivers. So they fed at least 100 people every wow. week. And um, when, when you, I said, how did they do that? And especially when we grew older and we had nephews and nieces, so that multiplied that, to something yeah. <laughs> like 200. So there was particular food that we liked. And uh, this was run by a, by a spinster aunt. And uh, shortly before she died, she, she told all of us, uh, on Sunday, please come early. And can you bring all of your cooks here? Because I want your cooks to learn the food that you grew up with. So we all brought our cooks and uh, they made the things. One was an adobo, one was a, a, a pork and, and chicken stew. Um, so all the things that we liked as, yeah. as children, they learned. And I remember my sister's cook and my cook were, were sort of laughing when we were on our way home. They said, you know... Uh, we saw you enjoying the food. Of course, I enjoyed that since I was a child. And then they said, do you know that their kitchen is not as clean as ours? And they said, do you know that they handled the food with our, their hands? Uh, so I was horrified by this. Uh, but again, it was the food that I grew up Damn. with. So the next, after two, three weeks, my, my cook tried all of it. So she got it perfectly. Mm -hmm. So I told my aunt, now I, I can have the food from my childhood. But I'm almost sure that my food is cleaner than yours. You know? <laughs> uh, but it was that. So uh, we had uh, uh, my uh, our favorite was it's like a spring roll, okay. a sweet spring roll with banana in it. Mm. So it's banana and jackfruit. Mm. And um, we used to wonder, for example, how come it it's crunchy? So even if you bring it home mm -hmm. for two three days, it remained crunchy. So oh. we were all wondering. Is it because they wrap it in newspaper? Is it because they put it in a basket? And so when I asked my cook, how come the how come this is crunchy after three, four? This spring roll is crunchy. And then she says, Do you know how much sugar they oh, they okay. use? They said, uh, you'll get diabetes from eating this. And that's when we realized it was crunchy because it was covered with caramelized sugar. Wow, okay. So they put a whole kilo of sugar in this thing and you may never noticed we'd eat more than three of those, you know. So I guess uh, we'll, we're all diabetic um, in that family. But again, it's that. Yeah. I, I often ask my, tell my students, we, we often identify what is the most hated childhood food. So it's always bitter gourd. Okay, uh, we yeah. call it ampalaya. The mm -hmm. second one is okra. Uh, which is disgusting because it has <laughs> it's furry on the outside and slimy inside, and and then I we ask ourselves why is it is it nature or is it God that why is it that food that tastes bad is good for you yes. like vegetable <laughs> and things that taste good are bad for you like chocolate ice cream and uh, a spring roll with caramel sugar. With <laughs> sugar so so we 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 talk about that so what what defines you know what what we like, what we don't like, and uh, it leads on to many other conversations. It does. So. It really does. Um, you obviously, you know, write so much more than, you know, things related to food. You're a historian. Um, and I was, you know, reading about, you know, some of the other books you've written. Uh, you've written about uh, Rizal as well. Um, what are you working on now? Uh, what's next for you? 
Well, the, the the newspaper columns continue. Um, yeah. that, that's what I keep telling telling people who ask me what my writing process is. I I often tell them, you know, don't believe what writing workshops tell you that you need you need the right mood, the right pen, a blue moon. I said, no. The only inspiration for me is the deadline. Yes. Uh, and uh, yes. Twice a week, I have to produce something, whether I like it or not, whether it's good or not. And if I did not have the biweekly deadline. I would not have had the body of work that that I have. Okay. So what am I working on now? I'm I'm doing a number of things. Um, one is I want to do um, my mother's cookbook. I, when she when she died, um, I mean when I first traveled abroad in the eighties. Uh, this was the the age before they had instant Philippine because now you can buy instant Philippine food. No? Uh, what do you mean instant? Uh, like, like um, if you want to do a sinigang or uh, something, so it comes in a sachet. Right. Or we have this sour. Okay. It's like a tom yum. It's mm -hmm. a sour um, soup called sinigang, mm -hmm. um, which is made of um, tamarind. Yeah. But today you can buy it in a conor cube, right, right. and uh, no one does the tamarind anymore. Okay. So, um, so our tastes have changed. Yes. But my mother, when I first traveled abroad, she made, uh, she typed out a survival recipe book for me. <laughs> so, how would you replicate? I was doing. I was a postgrad student in London. So, yeah. how can you do a sinigang without? Tamarind. Yeah. So she says, so you have to use lemon and tomatoes as a souring agent. You don't have milk fish. You can re uh, replace it with a trout. Mm -hmm. uh, and so she, she did this. All the food that I knew, she, she recreated using ingredients, uh, uh, I would find abroad. And, uh, when she died, we found out she, she left a little wooden box yeah. with all her recipes that were typewritten oh. and then it there were notations like this has been kitchen tested this one <laughs> I is love not that. that's and amazing so uh, it's amazing because uh, we're able to to replicate it mm. and uh, shortly before I, I i came to dubai i was doing research in in the ateneo university there's a 19th century woman who was who fed jose rizal um her recipe books are in in the archive, and these recipe books are are so interesting because it tells she was cooking in nineteenth century Paris. She was cooking Philippine food, uh, so like sotanghod, which is a vermicelli and chicken uh, dish. Uh, she would not only write what the ingredients were and how it was cooked on the margin. She would write the names of the people who ate it. So like on this day, I cooked this recipe mix. For ten people, and the ten people happen to be. Then you look at the list right. for Serisal and everyone else. So I said, "This is wonderful. We'll be able to to taste what they ate in yeah. the 19th century." But unfortunately, her her weights and measures we, we cannot understand. So like she makes, she says one makes bandejado, which is a platter. Right. But. What, what is a bandejada? How, yeah. how big is that? <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and so we realize, you know, uh, I mean, the French are very, uh, the Filipinos cook in the American way. It's it's cups and right. and teaspoons. Mm -hmm. But I like to think the French are very precise. They yeah. do it by weight, right? Mm. So everything it looks like 
you look at their recipes, it's like your high school science experiment. <laughs> you know, 30 grams of this, 20 drops of that. And I guess that's why it's replicable. Yeah. So uh, when I was looking at this old cookbook and my mother's cookbook, now you see how important weights and measures and kitchen testing is. You know? So it will be, again, I like to think that food has to be replicable because it is part of part of of people's lives um and the, the difficult thing here is when when you're remembering a dish how can you fight with nostalgia you know so it's a dish you're remembering from your child it, it, unless you have a kitchen tested you will not really get it the same way all the time so yeah. again these are the things uh i'm working on um so i'd like to memorialize my mother and uh and do her do her best uh, recipes and um, and see what her secrets are for for many years i was an examiner in our foreign service okay. and uh I, I i used to tell the foreign service that all our diplomats before they are stationed should all know how to cook because when you go abroad you part of your diplomacy is being able to serve the food of your country yeah. so they must learn to cook adobo of course but then they they died because their their one exam was like how do you cook a sinigang from scratch because again they they cook it from an, the, a conor uh, cube yeah. or a, or a sachet but mm -hmm, i said mm -hmm. you must know how to cook it from scratch and so again it's it's going back yeah. to the past that uh, the past and the present moving together and uh, making food uh, what it is and um, i guess that's what makes it an exciting uh, adventure. So it's not really, it's not really my line. There, there are now very good food historians in, in the Philippines. But it has always been of great interest to me yeah. to, to see to see food on your on your tongue, to, to see food in a palate, uh, uh, to see how different countries are defined by by their food. Yeah. Um, how food comes from from geography it's mm -hmm. it's it's what it is no? yeah. so like one of the things we we did which nobody used to do was i looked at the old 17th century dictionary so we gathered all the food okay. terms and then yeah. we found out that the the largest number of food references in the old spanish philippine dictionaries was fish right and the second one was rice and obviously it shows you Fish because it's an archipelagic country, rice because it's the staple. Yeah. So again, uh, all these things come together yeah. to to help us understand the way that we are and hopefully the way that we can be. Oh, that's that's a lovely thought. Um, thank you for sharing that. I have one more question for you, which okay. is something we ask everyone on this podcast. Um, what is it that nourishes your soul? Hmm. I'm just asking you all the tough food questions from, today. <laughs> food from my childhood. So oh. I, I guess it, it's that. I mean, um, all of us remember a childhood food. And mm. every childhood food is connected with a parent, a grandparent, a nanny. Um, and I guess that's that's a food and memory that nourishes you the rest of your life. You know, it, it's there the whole time. And uh, unfortunately, we go through life seeing things but not noticing. And as a historian, uh, in the work that I do, I like people not just to see, but to notice. And so 
what is it that nourishes me? And I think it is what nourishes all of us. It's, it's the food from our childhood. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. So is that the case for you too, the deadline being the motivation to get the writing done? So I would say when I started my career, it wasn't necessarily the case, but now there's definitely something about a looming deadline that always makes my creative juices flow. This episode was brought to you by Spinneys and is hosted by me, Devina Devecha and Tiffany Eslick. We're produced by Chirag Desai and artwork is by Michelle Clements and Jihan Youssef. You can follow Spinneys on Instagram, Facebook and TikTok for more and visit us at spinneys.com where you can shop for fresh produce and a variety of local and exclusive products. We'll be back in two weeks with our next episode where we chat to Chef Carmen Rueda Hernandez of Bricks in Dubai. Talk to you then.